All right, if you would, turn in your Bible with me to Luke chapter 3. We're going to do the first 14 verses today. And uh, I am glad to be back. I missed you guys last week. I hope you missed me. I know uh, that Brother Allen did a great job, so thank you all for letting us uh, get away. We had a, uh, I would say restful, but I'd be lying. We went to the mountains in North Georgia, and Melissa is an avid uh, hiker. She likes to hike. Now, you may look at me and say, you don't look like an avid hiker. Well, three or four days every couple of years, I try to be, which is, yeah, okay, stressful. But anyway, it was fun. It was fun. When I got to where I could walk again and, you know, move, walk downstairs, unassisted and stuff, it was great. Uh, but anyway, we're glad to be back. Now, when you think of great preachers, uh, I, can, I can list you a number of great preachers that I admire a lot. Some are dead, some are living. But one of the greatest preachers ever was John the Baptist. Now, when I say the preaching of John the Baptist, what do you think of first when you think of the preaching of John the Baptist? Repentance. That is exactly what I hoped you'd say, and that is exactly right. Uh, Repentance was his central message. So if that was the case, why do you think that that message of repentance is so largely absent in the church today? Well, I, can't, I guess it's kind of obvious. People don't like being told what to do or that they are wrong or in sin. And uh, folks just won't hardly tolerate being told that they're wrong these days. Uh, sometimes we see children that won't tolerate being told that they're wrong. Uh, let me tell you, if, if that's one of your kids or grandkids, let, teach them to tolerate it or you're growing a little uh, future Antifa member, right? We've got to instill respect for authority in our children or they grow up to be crazy people. So we see that repentance is really out of favor today. And in a few minutes, we're going to see that John gathers this big crowd together and then calls them a brood of vipers. Now, I don't think you're going to read about that in a church growth book. Uh, You know, many of us have become scared to tell folks that they have a problem. Now, we've all heard this story, and I think we heard it at Hearts for the Lost, but consider with me for a minute, if your doctor came in and said, I think you should be on this new medicine, and this new medicine is going to be hard on you, it's, um, it's going to make you sick at your stomach, and, and you're probably going to have a hard time keeping any food down, it's very likely going to make all your hair fall out, but I feel like it'd be a good idea for you to take this medicine. You're going to go, no way, I'm not taking medicine like that. But if first he comes and says, you have cancer. Now, the good news is this is a very treatable kind of cancer. And if you'll take this medicine that I'm going to give you, it's very likely you'll get well. Well, then all of a sudden, this recommendation to take medicine that's going to be hard on you sounds a lot more reasonable, right? A lot of times when we approach people with the gospel, we don't ever tell them the bad news that makes the good news good. And that's what repentance is about. Or if you went up to a guy on a plane and you said, you know what, I would love for you to wear this big 50 or 60 pound parachute. Well, plane seats are kind of small anyway. That'd be really inconvenient and uncomfortable. And he'd go, no thanks. But if you said, well, our engines just fell off. Would you like to wear this parachute? Then all of a sudden he thinks that's a great idea. And he's not worried about being cramped, right? So we've got to tell folks the bad news about their sin and about the upcoming judgment in order to contextualize the really, really good news that we have. 
Now, how do we share that message without coming across as holier than thou? Well, we need the following attitude. You know that John said, hey, you brood of vipers. So when we talk to folks, we need to say, hey, I used to be a viper too. Uh, I used to have that poison in my mouth. But I have been changed and now I've been transformed into a new creature. And by God's grace, I've been forgiven and I've been given the words of life in my mouth now. And I want to share those with you. So as long as we tell folks, yeah, you are a sinner, but so am I. And I have found the solution. You know, somebody said it's like a beggar telling another beggar where to go find bread. It's not that I'm better than the person who I need to confront with their sin. It's that I'm very sinful and I've found forgiveness. And I need to take them to that place that I found forgiveness. What we must do is uh, make sure that we don't remove the talk of sin and the talk of repentance when we share the gospel. Now that is not telling the cancer patient that they're sick in order to try to be nice to them. That's not ultimately nice to them. Or the guy on the plane, you don't, you don't avoid telling him to wear the parachute because, well, after all, it would make him uncomfortable. You know, he'd get really nervous and, and unhappy about that, right? Well, ultimately, it's still the right thing to do because it prepares him for what is to come. That's like saying, I'm not going to knock on my neighbor's door at 3 a.m. Well, no, I'm not because that would be rude. But if their house is on fire, it's not rude. It's necessary, right? So ultimately, to not tell people about sin and repentance is an evil thing. We're not sparing them or being kind to them if we lose that message. Now please read with me the first 14 verses of Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and, he, and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. So, soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. 
Now back in verse 2, we read that the word of God came to John. Now the word of God came. Now we tend to become apathetic toward that which is really familiar. But we need to hang on a second and snap out of that and see that the word of God came. And we need to pay attention to the word of God. I know that most of us, probably all of us, would say that we believe the Bible is the word of God. I also know that we can often be comfortable operating in in a logical inconsistency. (laughs) We can say, uh, you know, I know that's the word of God and I ignore it. Now, that's irrational, but we can, we can make ourselves comfortable there. Well, I want to shake you out of that comfort by thinking together this morning. If we really believe that the Bible is the Word of God, how can we possibly neglect its reading? Now, those of you who neglect the regular reading and study of the Word fall into at least one of these categories. Number one, maybe you don't really believe that it's the Word of God. Now, I doubt we have very many here who would say that, but at least that makes sense, right? If we're going to ignore it, then, well, maybe we don't really believe it's the Word of God, and then that's a rational explanation for why we ignore it. Number two, you think it's the Word of God, but you don't really care what He has to say. And again, I don't think that's the case for most of us, Um, but it would be a rational explanation for why we ignore it. Another one is, maybe we think we already know everything in the Bible, uh, if, you, if you think you know everything in the Bible, that is a sure sign that you've not done much Bible study. <laughs> because the more you do, the more you'll realize, oh, I've got so much to learn. And I doubt many of us are, are confident enough to say that. So the fourth category is one that I think most of us are in. And that is, you do believe it's the Word of God, and you do care what He says, but you operate day to day in an irrational and logically inconsistent manner. Now, I hope that most of you fall into that fourth category that don't read and study the Bible. But I would like for us to think together as to why we must not ignore the Word of God. Let this be your wake-up call and then start, start reading it. Now, forget about your various excuses. You know that they're all lame, but if you don't know they're all lame, do this for me. Pray to God and have a candid conversation of why you don't read and study your Bible. Um, you will become humiliated as you hear your excuses be given to God and you'll go, okay, these are stupid excuses. I I know because I've done this. Uh, Sometimes I'll get in a sinful attitude and I'll pray about it and I'll say, well, God, here's why I should feel sorry for myself. And then as I enumerate the things, I start going, oh, I'm an idiot, aren't I? Okay, I'm sorry. And then I, it brings me to repentance. So if you, if you think you have a valid excuse for not studying the Word of God, explain it to God and see how that goes. As you pray, you'll see, just it, God will reveal to you the truth about those excuses. Now, allow me to say a word about Bible study here. Bible study does not mean reading a commentary by someone who actually did Bible study. Now, commentaries are good. I read them all the time. I read them every week in preparation for sermons. Commentaries are great. But what I mean by Bible study is I mean slow down long enough to understand what the original author was saying to the original audience And then meditate on how that truth can be applied to you. 
and then actually apply it. <laughs> There's the other part that we don't always do. Sometimes we go, okay, I studied the Bible, I understood the message, I understood the context. Cool, now I can go away. No, not cool, until you actually apply that truth to yourself. Now that's what I try to do with every sermon. Uh, and if, you'll, if you take notes or if you pay attention at least and stay awake, uh, you'll see sort of an outline of how that can be done. You take what the Word says, you see what it means, and then you see how it can be generally applied. And then you have to do the extra work of saying, okay, I see how it can be generally applied. Now here's how I'm going to apply it. In other words, if I say it is really helpful and beneficial and you don't have any good excuse not to study the Word of God, and you go, okay, and then leave it there, we haven't finished listening to the sermon. What you got to do is apply it to you by saying, you know what, I'm going to start with 15 minutes of Bible reading a day just so I can get my feet wet and get started. That's actually taking it and applying it and making it make a difference. Now, there are some uh, ways you do Bible study and some ways you don't do Bible study. I heard a sermon recently, and I'm going to change the details because I don't, I don't want you to uh, know anything about who gave this sermon. Um, here's how it went. He took a text like Matthew 27, 5, and it says, And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. And then you say, well, let me contemplate that verse. Okay, he, he hanged, he, re- he hanged, okay. So that reminds me, it's, it's not really cool to hang out with the wrong people. <laughs> and then you say, let me think of three words that I can make sermon points that start with the same letter so that I won't forget them and I won't be cool enough that I don't have to take notes with me up to the podium, right? All right, so let's say hanging out with the wrong people can lead you in the wrong direction. Hanging out with the wrong people can mean that they are lying to you. And hanging out with the wrong people can, uh, can make your loyalty to Jesus flounder, right? Now that is an example of really bad Bible study where you take something that has nothing to do with what the passage said and you make a little moral story to go along with it. But you have to put a little bit of Bible verse in there or else you know, it doesn't seem like Bible study. Now, if the speaker is charismatic enough, unfortunately, most of the folks in the audience will think they heard a Bible lesson when they leave. That is pandemic. Talk about pandemic. That is pandemic in our churches today. This is not Bible study. It is, I want to give a moral lesson, and I figure I should stick a Bible verse in there to make it sound like a sermon. I beg you to be discerning enough to know the difference, because I promise most people are not. But anyway, I need to stop chasing that rabbit and get back to the meaning of the text, don't I? <laughs> so let's learn that the Bible is what we need, not, not man's wisdom. So please read it, please study it, and please listen to real preaching. Uh, if you want to listen to more and better preachers, come and talk to me, and I will give you a list so long that you won't have time to listen to them all. We have the ability now to listen to the world's greatest Bible teachers whenever we feel like it on our phone or computer. All right, back to our text. Notice with me that the Word of God came in a real setting. It came in a time, in a place, with these different rulers. Luke was a a meticulous historian. He was careful to tell us that in this day, when this guy was ruling, so Luke is saying exactly when this stuff happened, because remember from 
chapter 1, he was writing an orderly account that could be trusted. And so he is placing this in a time and place with people. He's not saying now, uh, you know, once upon a time, this stuff happened, right? If he said that, you'd go, okay, well, this is a fable. No, he's saying when this guy was ruler and this other guy was ruler and this guy was high priest, he is putting it in a real context. His witness is reliable. The word of God came to faithful men, not the famous men. See, he, he sent his word to John who was, you know, thought of kind of as a crazy dude in the wilderness. He could have given his word to Caesar. He could have given his word to the rich and the famous who could have disseminated that word. But instead, he gave it to the faithful. Now, don't get too hyped up when a famous person says something vaguely Christian. I know we do that, and I kind of do that. And, uh, you know, if somebody says something that we kind of like and he's a dude we kind of like, like Drew Brees or something, we get all excited and we go, woo. Well, don't do that because then you'll be really disappointed a couple of days later when cancel culture comes after him and he has to, he has to say, oh, I'm sorry I said that. So God's word doesn't really, doesn't really normally come to the rich and famous, but the faithful instead. I rejoice over anyone who truly comes to faith. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, God normally uses ordinary folks to do extraordinary things. The Word of God calls for repentance. Verse 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance for forgiveness. All right, so we need to understand that that is what repentance is about. But what is repentance? Well, I like to say that it's unconditional surrender. You know, God on the throne, not you. That's what repentance is. Now, we spoke about John MacArthur earlier. Let me read a quote from him. Repentance is not merely behavior reform, But because true repentance involves a change of heart and purpose, it inevitably results in a change of behavior. So, at the core, repentance is not just changing your behavior. It's changing a lot of other things that lead to a change of behavior. Like faith, repentance has intellectual, emotional, and volitional ramifications. I'm still quoting from uh, John MacArthur. Louis Burkhoff describes the intellectual element of repentance as a change of view, a recognition of sin as involving personal guilt, defilement, and helplessness. The emotional element is a change of feeling manifesting itself in sorrow for sin committed against a holy God. The volitional element is a change of purpose, an inward turning away from sin, and a disposition to seek pardon and cleansing. Each of those three elements is deficient apart from the others. Repentance is a response of the total person. Therefore, some speak of it as total surrender. So to keep it simple and to keep it something that we can understand, I believe calling it unconditional surrender is a great thing. Have you unconditionally surrendered? Now this, guys, is where we take and we apply to ourselves, okay? Do you forsake the assembly? Do you give sacrificially or fail to give sacrificially? Do you regard others more highly than yourself? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Now, I don't do all those things perfectly. But there is a difference, guys, between things we can sit down at the kitchen table and decide to do, and then, well, 
sin, but things that we didn't intend to do that we get ourselves into later on. For instance, let's consider giving for a second. Giving is not something I can mess up. You know why? Because what I do is I tell my bank to send money over here on a weekly basis. If I didn't, I'd mess it up. So I, I, I can pre-program myself not to mess that one up. I can pre-program myself not to mess up forsaking the assembly. I can go, if it's Sunday morning and I'm not in the hospital or actively you know, having troubles that I won't describe here, if I'm physically able to get up and get in the car and drive over here, I'm going to be here on Sunday. Uh, so those are things we can pre-plan and we can say, all right, I've got that settled. But then there are other things like putting others needs before mine. I don't always do that perfectly. Loving my neighbor as myself, I've probably never done that perfectly, right? So we need to do what we can do to pre-program and to make sure that the things that we can control, we are controlling. Now, after genuine repentance, we're still going to wrestle with sin because of the old nature, right? That's why I still fall into sin is because that old sinful man is still there weighing me down. But let me tell you, if you're going to wrestle with sin, wrestle don't just, don't just go, oh, I give up and get pinned to the mat, right? <laughs> Sometimes when I see people that say, this is a struggle for me, I think, well, are you struggling or are you just rolling over? I mean, struggling with sin is hard work. That's one reason that I need the fellowship of other believers in the church. You know, sometimes I need help in that wrestling match, right? If sin is getting all on me, I need to, I need to tag somebody to come in and help me, right? That is what we need the fellowship of the church for. I want us to see that repentance is the first thing. Verse 4 through 6, it says, As it is written in the book of the words of of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, repentance is where salvation begins, at least on your side of the equation. Now, the Bible tells us that God foreknew, then predestined, and called the elect. We, we see that in Scripture. But that's his business, and it's something that we can't observe. For our point of view, understanding our sin and our guilt, that is the initial step in salvation. We have to know that we have a problem in order to want to fix the problem. That's why Way of the Master is such a great way to share the gospel. You see, it shows people the problem, which is, of course, their sin and rebellion in in light of God's holiness. And then it shows them the solution. Christ's finished work on the cross that can be applied to them through faith. And it really is that simple. You know, you don't need a degree in theology in order to witness. You show people the problem, and then you show people the solution. A gospel without repentance is a different gospel from that of John the Baptist and Jesus and the apostles. It produces churches with carnal rather than spiritual people. Like John prepared the way for Jesus, an understanding of sin and repentance prepares the human heart for salvation. Let's see that the word of God warns us. Judgment is coming. In verse 7, He says, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. 
And verse 17 says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, not only is judgment coming, but you need to flee that judgment. Isn't that a compelling reason to tell your neighbor? They may not know anything is coming. Guys, if I can walk across the street here and down a little, a few feet and knock on the door and speak to a lady and say, do you know who Jesus is? And she says, I think he's some white dude. And she wasn't being facetious. She wasn't being unkind. She wasn't being adversarial. She had no idea who Jesus was, except she thought he was a white guy. Guys, she doesn't know that judgment is coming and that she needs to flee the wrath to come, right? That's why I went to her house, was to tell her. So we need to tell folks this message. Leaving people in comfortable ignorance is not loving them. You know, I talked to a guy in my neighborhood who said he would prefer to go to hell because that's where his uncle would be. Now, I was heartbroken for the guy. I'm still heartbroken for the guy. And a lot of times that I pass his house on the way to my house, I'll pray for him. Um, because, you know, how, how deluded, how confused is he to think this? But my interaction with him was, uh, I mean, it could be called rejection, right? I mean, he rejected me, rejected my message. But remember what Jesus said about that. He said, the one who hears you, hears me. This is Luke ten sixteen, And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So guys, if you get rejected while you're witnessing, you are the least of these, right? Because Jesus has been rejected and the father who sent him has been rejected. So if you get a little bit of sense of rejection, guys, it's not that big a deal. The word of God produces fruit in the life of a believer. Repentance is action, guys. Read with me verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children for Abraham. Verse 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So verse 8 says to bear fruit. Don't just talk. Don't just talk. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is a, is a verb here. It's an action verb, right? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In verse 13, he says, collect no more than you are owed. In verse 14, he says, do not extort money. So these guys in different professions come to him and they say, hey, so what does repentance look like for me? I'm a tax collector. And he says, well, if you're a tax collector, what repentance is, is doing your job right rather than extorting people. Or if you're a soldier, instead of demanding stuff from people that you could get, instead protect the people and be good to the people. So whatever your profession is, whatever your calling in life is, that can, your repentance toward God can be actively demonstrated in your day-to-day activity, the way you function and the way you treat other people. 
If your religion does not impact your actions, then you have a worthless religion. Now, we have two wrong ideas regarding works and salvation. One of those is that works produces salvation. That is absolutely incorrect. Works can never save anybody. But the other incorrect perception is they say, well, works have nothing to do with salvation. And that too is wrong. Truth, the truth is that salvation, okay, which includes repentance, produces good works. If good works had no role in the Christian life, Jesus would not have said that we can tell folks by their fruits. Matthew seven fifteen through 20, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Fruits, guys, is proof of life. If you have an apple tree in the backyard and there are no apples on it, you need to see if it's okay, see if it's alive. If uh, it's dead, it's not going to produce apples this year. And it's not going to produce next year either, or the next, or the next. And it's not worth anything. It's not going to provide you with fruit, so cut it down and burn it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Luke 3, 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Why are they going to throw it into the fire? Because it's dead, right? If you're not bearing fruit really need to check and make sure you're not dead spiritually. Examine yourself and see if there are signs of spiritual life. If not, if not, here's what most folks in the church would do. If you look at your life and you say, there's no, there's no bearing of good fruit. What do I do? I try harder to fake it. <laughs> that, is the, that is the chief answer. But instead of that, we need to say, instead of trying harder to fake it, I need to get the source of genuine life. That way I can bear fruit. Now, what do we do? I like to have this section in many of my sermons that says, what do we do? Because we got to take the truth and apply the truth, right? Well, I like to ask that question, but it turns out John's listeners had the same question for him. In verse 10, they said, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Verse 12, tax collectors came to him to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? All right? So they want to know what to do because they understand from John's good preaching that repentance is action. If you're here today and you're not saved, it is almost certainly because you've not repented. If you want Jesus as your Savior, he also comes as your Lord and Master. Is that what you want? Would you surrender to him unconditionally? That's the question, guys. If you come up to lost people and you say, hey, when you die, would you rather go to this miserable, horrible place of separation and torment? Or would you rather go to this place of endless bliss? Now, nobody in their right mind is going to say, I would rather go to the place of eternal torment, right? That's not what makes salvation difficult. What makes salvation difficult for the unsaved is they say, oh, I have to unconditionally surrender. I have to make Jesus the Lord of my life. 
I have to take my control and surrender it to him? That's the sticking point, guys. Not repeating a prayer. Repeating a prayer is easy. Repentance is the hard part. As a matter of fact, I would say it's the impossible part aside from the Spirit of God enabling you to do so. So are there areas where you want to remain on the throne? Now, of course, I don't mean perfect obedience all the time or we'd all be disqualified, right? But let me ask you, in your life, who is the boss, you or God? What about with your time? What about with your money? What about with your sexual relationships? We need total, unconditional surrender. If you've never done that, let me invite you to do that today. We're going to have an invitation where I invite you to come up here. And I'm going to put on my mask to make sure I don't breathe on you. But if you would like to hear more about what salvation really is, and the reason I say that is, there are a lot of folks that have been in church for years, maybe decades, and they don't understand repentance because they have never unconditionally surrendered. They've said, God, I'll give you a couple of hours on Sunday morning as long as the preacher doesn't go past 1030. I might even send a little bit of a check because I know we've got to keep the lights on. Um, that's about it, Right. And a lot of church members all over this country, that's their level of commitment. Let me tell you, that is vastly different than unconditional surrender, right? So let me say, if you're here today and you say, you know, I've heard the gospel, but I, I don't think I understood repentance. <laughs> let me invite you to come up here and speak with me. If you'd like to be a member, if you're not, come talk to me and we'll tell you how to start that process. And otherwise, if you'd like to come and pray with me, it would be my honor pray with you. Uh, Like I said, I I missed you guys last week, and I do love you. And I want you to know and understand what repentance is. Because there are a lot of people, a lot of people who are going to go to hell from a pew. You know, we think about folks going to hell from the gutter, and they will. But there are a lot of folks that are going to go to hell from a pew. And to tell you the truth, Satan would rather you do that because of your ability to influence others in the church. Let's pray.